at first she said that I need to go find something of my faith, but then it became mandatory that I went to church. I felt totally out of place and it was kind of scary. Welcome to Hidden Voices. I'm your host, Raisa Habersham. Join me on my journey to learn more about the experiences of Georgia residents with developmental disabilities, guided along the way by my co-host and mentor, Dorona King. My conversation with Aya and Autumn Baskins left me feeling a bit hopeless about Georgia's so-called special education system. But what really broke my heart was how Autumn described the reality of Aya's future, a future shared by so many other students with developmental disabilities. I can't fathom the thought of better not dream too much, as Dorona put it. The idea speaks to the low assumptions assigned to people with disabilities. But it also speaks to the non-inclusive environments people with developmental disabilities often find themselves in. Hearing Dorona talk about the segregation in schools made me wonder, are there any places where people with developmental disabilities feel fully accepted? I personally believe in God and grew up going to church. And I've seen how places of worship can offer refuge for people from every walk of life. But I also understand how religious spaces can be a place of trauma for those who don't fit a certain mold. I have witnessed this with my own friends in the LGBTQ community. They were shunned for going against the word of God as their church saw it, when all the while they were just looking for a place to belong. Knowing this, I wondered how a person with a developmental disability might be treated in a faith-based community. So, you know, you brought up there's conversation about who gets to sit on the pew versus who doesn't. And that never crossed my mind that there were conversations about just who gets to lead. We've mentioned some about even what accessibility looks like. If you think about the historical physical structure, say, of Jewish temples or Christian churches based in some of the historical narrative of ascending up to Jerusalem, the edifices themselves have typically been inaccessible because you need to climb to the holy place. You need to ascend to the holy place to be close to God. You know, where does this idea of needing to heal someone with a developmental disability come from? Is, and is it still pervasive in faith today? I think there's still a lot of it in faith, but the perversion in the teaching is that, well, you must not have enough faith or you that that's that all all sickness or what might be considered disability must be associated with some sin. And so that connection between whatever is perceived as as a disability uh, just is just subtly ingrained. And so you get people who, get sometimes paid, you know, to have these healing services or to, to convince people that if they just, if they just believed and had enough faith, they, they would get up out of that wheelchair instead of 
the reality of us all being created in the image of God, that we all have gifts, the capacity within each of us, if we believe that we, we have this connection to God, is, is full. Faith for some people is different. And people don't necessarily lean in on faith because, you know, they think it will fix them. They want something to believe in. And I think that often with my friends who are LGBTQ and, you know, they lean into faith and they do that despite the fact that there are so many people who use, you know, scriptures to tell them that you're wrong or to say that, well, if you go to church, you can somehow be fixed. You will be, quote, straight. And it may not be for me to understand, but I've never understood how, you know, my friends that are LGBTQ are able to lean into faith despite the negative messaging. Yeah, the, the, the fixing is significant. I think many segregating and dehumanizing practices have been justified from the segregated Sunday school classes, which many faith communities still practice, right? To people being made the mission project of the, the Sunday school class or the, the mission or service community, these very practices continue to perpetuate these hierarchical differences <laughs> and this class stratus. This group of people, they're so broken, they're so far removed from what we consider holy that they have to be over here or over there, apart from us more holy whole and perfect people. I spoke with Mary Saleela Cook about her personal experiences with faith. Mary, who prefers to go by Saleela, is a creative spirit and has quite the green thumb. She paints what comes to her in her dreams and manages the garden at her local church. Saleela was diagnosed with chronic depression and anxiety when she was 12. Saleela is someone whose experiences with mental illness began as a young child, and those experiences significantly impacted her development and interrupted her education. She was raised following Islam, but was forced to go to a Christian church when she lived in a group home. In my group home at first, she said that I need to go find something of my faith, but then it became mandatory that I went to church. There was people that was disabled. There was people that wasn't disabled. She saw a lot of potential in me, but... I didn't really like how it was done. I felt totally out of place. I felt uncomfortable. I had to go to a Christmas party. I had to go. I cried so hard because it wasn't my thing. It was a Santa Claus that was in red, all red, and it was kind of scary. I was disheartened by Salayla's experience. Being forced to attend a place of worship is wrong, especially one that is not of your faith. I asked if there was anyone who knew about this or was an advocate for her during this time. I made friends in the Holy Comforter where the Friendship Center was. One time I left, and I left for a long time, and I came back. They were so happy to see me, and that's a church-based place. But I'm not, I'm not Christian. So it was, it was really beautiful to see people um, care about me and they know that I'm not their faith. 
That's very encouraging. I'm glad you have such a strong support system in place to have helped you. Um, And I know that you also garden. Can you tell me a little bit about your gardening endeavors? Oh, um, I work there. That's at the Friendship Center. It's for people with um, mental health or any type of disability. So they allowed me to work there and I became one of their um, top gardeners. Nowadays, I've been working there for, I think, five or six years. And I, I love gardening. I love nature. I have plants, pictures all over my wall. And I feel like I, I sometimes represent a garden a lot. Um, and I understand you sell your art through Synergy's work. Um, can you tell me a little bit about Synergy's work and how you got involved with them? Well, Synergy's work is a place where you can become an entrepreneur and sell your artwork or whatever you may do. That's fantastic. And I sold eight paintings last year. Can you tell me a little bit about your dance background? I saw that you performed at the 2019 Georgia Disability History Symposium. Can you talk a little bit about that dance that you performed? And, you know, what story were you trying to convey in that dance? Okay, so I was with Francie Wallace, and she she basically let me tell the story of a girl who was made fun of and disabled somehow. And the part that I remember the most was when we danced together, she was the angel and I was the little girl who was heartbroken. And I remember the song, um, Don't Stop by John Batiste. I love that song. And it just like, it inspired me to, to be able to make up that part because I do believe in angels and angels speaking to us and talking to us and trying to lift us up and give us hope. Who's that little girl representative of? Well, um, it was actually me and any little girl who felt like they weren't enough. I always felt like I wasn't enough. And I'm, I'm 32, learning that I am enough. But I'm still learning that. And sometimes I have to build myself up. Sometimes my friends have to build me up. But I'm still here. I believe in Islam. I'm Islamic. I was raised to believe in Allah. Allah has always saved me from a lot of stuff. I'm very grateful. If it wasn't for Allah, I don't think that I'd be here talking to you guys now. Mm. Um, my faith is my everything. Can you go into deeper detail on some of the things that he's saved you from? Well, I was diagnosed with chronic depression when I was 12. And there were times where I tried to hurt myself when I was younger. And I'm still alive. I'm still here. I know that I'm supposed to be here. And I know that it's Allah that's always helping me. Hmm. Um, I wanted to go back because I know you said that you tried to hurt yourself. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how Allah kind of helped guide you 
away from further harming yourself? Well, he would guide people in my life to let me be with them. Or sometimes he would say himself, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't take those pills. Mm. I mean, a lot of people hear the spirit talking to them. You mentioned pills, and correct me if I'm assuming too much. Was this a suicide attempt with the pills? Always. Can you talk about, I guess, the first time you attempted and just at what point was it where Allah said, no, I don't want you to attempt suicide? Or, you know, how would you phrase what happened? Well, I mean... To be honest, he, okay, like the way he said no was I would take the pills and then it would come back up. It would Mm. all just come back up and I'll end up going to sleep and then I'd wake up fatigued, but I would Mm. still be alive. Nobody would know about it. It was like he had my back. Despite being Muslim, Salela has been attending an Episcopal church because she felt more of a sense of belonging. They actually supported me in being Islamic. They just accepted me. And I like that. Macy, she would tell people who are judgmental, who she's my boss. Mm-hmm. She would tell them Muslims are very good people, so don't judge. I respect her for that. But I wanted to be a part of that community because there were so many people that loved me there, Mm -hmm. you know? And when I did come out uh, of telling them that I was Muslim for my whole life, a few of them didn't really understand, but Macy had my back. And then Mm -hmm. my friends had my back. I'm just, I'm happy that they accept me for who I am. I wanted to ask you, um, and I mentioned church earlier, but do you attend a mosque? I do. I attend the one on 500 McDonald Street, um, Masjid Al-Quran. And I said my Shahada. Um, I learned a lot of the prayer in Arabic. And then I also had some friends. They taught me a lot more of the prayer. And uh, along with the Quran teacher. And I, I really love them. I love them with all my heart. Did you find the church more accepting of your disability than the mosque? I found it more accepting because I didn't tell them exactly what I had. I told them a little bits and pieces, mm. but I didn't tell them everything the church they were full of people that were disabled in every way so I did feel more accepted there with my mental health like many people COVID has kept Salayla from being around people she loves including her citizen advocate Sherry Mann Stewart we met through Drona through citizens advocacy we just hit it off we did we went to I think it was a coffee shop and the vibes were good. I just loved everything about her. It was like I saw me and her a little bit, but only 
little few differences. She's like who I want to be when I get older. I love to hear that. I think that's something we kind of look for in people we meet, someone kind of just like us. I wanted to ask you also, you know, you mentioned earlier about your spiritual gifts. You know, how do you want to use that to help others? The Quran is is a good message. The religion is absolutely beautiful, but sometimes I have to tell people that you can't let people disturb you from what you believe in. You have to follow the religion and the book because people are different from the religion itself. And don't give up on yourself just because you may have a disability because everything happens for a reason. It's always a purpose for it. You know, you're very accepted in your religious community, or at least you feel accepted in your religious community. But what would you say to anyone listening who has a disability, who may be searching for belonging and acceptance, you know, someone who doesn't think that they are enough or who doesn't feel loved? What do you say to them? You are loved. Whoever you believe in, they love you. Allah has multitudes of names. I believe that the Creator, they love you. Believe in yourself, brush it off and keep it moving and move with your head up high because you're here for a reason. You are absolutely loved. Salayla's story of finding acceptance in religion stayed with me because she'd found a place where she could almost be her whole self. Almost. She does hide her disability from her mosque to feel more accepted. But if Salayla still has to hide parts of herself to feel included, is there a specific church or faith-based person out there to advocate on behalf of people like her? I found answers to that question after talking to Mark Crenshaw, the Director of Interdisciplinary Training at Georgia State University. He has dedicated his career to community building and inclusion for people with developmental disabilities. Mark, who has cerebral palsy, also works to mentor people with developmental disabilities with the expectation that they, too, will become leaders in disability work and beyond. Mark grew up in a small congregation in a small town in Oklahoma. He always wanted to work in the church. When he got to college, he studied theology and found more resources for people who, like him, have a developmental disability. What he ultimately found was the realization that he deserves to be loved and fully accepted. As a person who identifies as a person with a disability, you know, I grew up in a small congregation in a small town in Oklahoma. and. I needed more resources to think about myself as a person with a disability before God than I got in Sunday school growing up. I was also sort of growing up interested in working in the church and so sort of grew up with a vision of myself potentially as a church pastor. But it really sort of comes back to sort of my sort of self-understanding of myself with a, as a person with a disability and sort of wanting to gain more resources and ideas for understanding who I was before God. And the study of religion and theology gave me resources to think about myself differently, to think about myself positively, 
to understand that I was a person who was fundamentally loved and fun, fundamentally gifted. And so, you know, that, that's really what brought me to the study of religion and theology. Despite his love of the church, Mark experienced early on how faith-based communities can make people with developmental disabilities feel isolated or rejected. As a preteen and teenager with a disability, I, I did certainly feel a need to feel love and acceptance. And so I didn't, from a young age, sort of understand that there was uh, a problem <laughs> with who I was as a person with a disability. I, I didn't necessarily always understand myself in the church to to, you know, I, I didn't have questions about whether uh, I was acceptable to God uh, as a person with a disability. As I grew older in, in the church that I was a part of, there were questions about that that were put in my mind by clergy and later leadership within the church. Um, I've come to believe as an adult that, that sort of those, those folks were sort of doing the best they knew how, but um, at the same time, uh, you know, for a long time, it caused me to have some doubts about my relationship with God. And uh, I've been to lots and lots of therapy about, about that as an adult. When you were approached by clergymen, you know, about your disability, and they put thoughts in your head that there's something, you know, wrong with you because you had a disability, how did it make you feel in that moment? Oh, it was um, devastating. It was absolutely devastating. It really struck at the heart of my understanding of myself as a whole person. And so, you know, back to this journey to then theology school, to seminary. And um, that sort of set me on a path to sort of reclaim who I was uh, and um, gave me lots of, lots and lots of energy to re-engage in a conversation about who I am as a person with a disability and and therefore sort of what is possible uh, when we engage differently with the stories of our traditions and with our histories and that sort of thing. Was there anyone who offered support to you when you were, you know, having struggles with your faith and how people at your church viewed you? Did you have any support system there to help guide you through that? I had certainly had supportive friends in my youth group and um, my parents uh, were pretty supportive um, and have, have always been a, a source of support. But for the most part, I remember sort of that part of my journey as a person of faith as pretty lonely and really, um, really very, very hard. There goes that word lonely again. Disability exclusion is something Mark is all too familiar with. I approach this part of the conversation to say to live with a disability in um, modern day America is to navigate a world that wasn't meant for you. But what I'll say is, you know, lots of folks think about uh, barriers to access uh, related to physical structures. If the congregation's entrance has one step, it's one step too many for someone in a wheelchair. If the community isn't open to the participation of individual with autism in religious service, you know, there can be disruption that happens in the context of religious service that can make the congregation and the leadership uncomfortable. And, you know, that person 
then becomes a, uh, a problem to be fixed rather than a member of the community to be welcomed and to be embraced. When you talk about inclusivity for religious places, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think inclusivity in religious places looks like people being welcome. I think it means that people are connected, participating in all the ways that are meaningful to them, whether that's as a worship participant, as a member of the choir, as a lay reader. People want to worship. People want to study. People want to serve. People want to lead. And so I think it's really important then when we engage religious communities, faith communities, churches in these conversations to say inclusion looks like opportunity to participate in those ways and to take seriously all of them to say, you know, I used to used to say when I was talking to congregations for the first time about sort of this journey toward inclusion, how do you know when you're welcome someplace? Well, you know you're welcome someplace when they trust you enough to give you something to do. Um, and mm. so, and it might mean that a person with a disability, that the doing looks different than it has before, right? So uh, my friend who was a member of a Baptist church in Metro Atlanta, one of the ways that she first got to contribute to the church was by being a sponsor for the middle school youth group in the congregation. You know, she was an older woman with, um, with a disability who used a wheelchair, used a letter board to communicate. Um, one of the things that she loved to do was to send email. <laughs> and so she was in charge of making sure that she sent emails to the youth and their parents, letting them know what the what the group was going to do the next week. And so the church had to work with my friend, uh, with Betty, to figure out what she wanted to do, to figure out what was important to her, to figure out how she was going to do what she was going to do. Um, and she also showed up every Sunday evening for the youth group meetings. And um, she ended up being a mentor to several members of the youth group. I think it's just just important to um, remember that inclusion of anyone who isn't there already is about sometimes thinking outside the box and being willing to, to do things differently. As his friend Betty Thompson did, Mark also spends time mentoring young people with disabilities. I envision a world where people with disabilities are leading these conversations, um, where people with disabilities are uh, trusted sources of information, are engaged to lead in different ways, right? So I think, I think leadership looks like lots of different things. I think it looks like lots of different activities. And I didn't grow up in a community where I was expected to lead. So as I've come to adulthood, those relationships with other, with other people with disabilities have become important to me. And I have a ton of privilege in my space, right? So as a white man with a disability who's had the privilege of going to and obtaining higher education, having friends and relationships where people, you know, trust me, I have an opportunity to hold the door open for other people with disabilities. And that's part of why I'm passionate about mentoring. That's why I think it's the calling of my life is to create opportunities where people with disabilities are welcome and respected 
and their voices and stories are important and their gifts and skills are engaged. If there's someone in my circle, if there's someone who I have taught and mentored who can make an even stronger contribution than me, I want to sort of clear the path for them. I connected with what Mark was saying about mentorship, as on this journey, I have begun to understand what it means to pass the mic, to give others voice. I asked Mark what he would say to someone with a disability who may not feel accepted by their church or place of worship. I think that response has changed over time. You know, I think I want to have a conversation with that person about why the community is important to them. You know, what got them there in the first place? What's their interest in being a part of that community? And then we can create a plan moving forward, whether that's sort of approaching the leadership in the congregation and explaining what this person's experience has been and trying to figure out if we can create a situation by which they can feel you know, increasingly safe and welcome. Because I think that congregations, that faith communities, that churches and synagogues and mosques, what's really at stake for me at the, at the heart of this conversation is I need for people with disabilities to be engaged in these, in these communities such that when they're not there, someone misses them. I know I belong in a, in a religious community when people call to check on me when I'm not there. And I get concerned about how people with disabilities can be isolated and excluded. And that, you know, aside from sort of paid service providers in their life, they don't have often people who will care enough to pick up the phone and say, or shoot a text and say, I missed you. Anything you need, when can I look forward to talking to you again? And if we don't have relationships uh, between people with disabilities, people with disabilities and their families and congregations, we sort of miss a critical link in that. The other way you know that your that your presence and participation and the connections you made are meaningful is when people ask about you when you're not there. Mark's words about acceptance stuck with me specifically feeling like you matter when someone calls you up if they haven't seen you in a while. I am so fortunate to feel valued in my life, and my friends and family make it clear when they miss me. I can't imagine how hard it would be to not feel or hear that. That only adds another layer of loneliness to what people with developmental disabilities may already be experiencing during this pandemic. I spoke with Dorona about how I was feeling. Admittedly, I don't go to church. While I pray and I believe in God, I don't go to church. I've always been curious about how different people tie themselves to the church, a church or a religious building that doesn't value them. For me, it never dawned on me like why someone would fight through that until I spoke with Salayla. And what I learned from her story and Mark's, to be honest, was yes. There will be situations you'll find yourself in when you're not accepted, but go where you are loved. Sorry, Issa. What are you unlearning? I don't know if I would call it unlearning as much as I'm learning, you know, in speaking with Mark, that while my mind immediately goes to is a building ADA compliant, I don't often think about the attitudes Mm -hmm. in church. Mm -hmm. And how that can be a hindrance as well. 
Do I think about attitudes in terms of acceptance of LGBTQ communities? Yes. But I never thought about it in the perspective of a place of worship and how there's this idea that you need to be fixed. And that's pretty dangerous. So what I hear you saying in regards to, and I think we want to be clear, we're, we're talking about organized religion and faith communities across the board, right? Not speaking directly to um, any particular faith. There is something that feels uneasy about what we have seen, the experience of people who are identified as unique or different from the dominant culture in faith communities. Are you saying that makes you feel uncomfortable? Yes, it makes me feel uncomfortable that there's this idea that people with disabilities need to be excluded. And then on top of that, they need to be cured. Mm -hmm. That's very uncomfortable for me because as a person, anyone shouldn't want to feel like they were born bad or they were born a mistake. Yes, that's exactly how I would frame it, that they were born a mistake. What I've heard from Salayla's story and from Mark's story is just this willingness to belong and finding a place where you belong. And for me, it's just a matter of changing my idea of casting complete doubt mm -hmm. over places of worship. Right. Because if I cast complete doubt then I don't allow for growth in other areas mm -hmm. or I don't allow opportunities to find faith-based entities that are welcoming. I cast complete doubt and I cast assumption that they're not going to be accepting. And that's not fair to that place of worship. That's not fair to me. And it's not fair to Salayla's and Mark's story because they have a strong community and they deserve that. Anyone deserves that. Anyone deserves to feel whole and to be a part of a community where they are welcomed. And as Mark put it, be a part of a community where they call you up after two days of not seeing you or even a day of not seeing you and say, hey, where are you? Where have you been? We go back to thinking about how are we, if we look at how are we more alike than different? We need love. We need acceptance. We need welcoming. And so the answer to that isn't a big whited building at all. The answer is that are the individuals, the people that traverse those places. If we believe that everyone has something to contribute and that's what faith communities should believe, then not only will I come and receive, but you are benefiting at the body is benefiting from the gifts that I bring, whatever that is whatever that is. We talk about our mutual friend, um, Betty Thompson, in her worship experience. Betty lit up the room with just joy and love. And that was a gift because who doesn't need joy and love, right? Who doesn't need someone to bring that into the space? Yeah. In faith communities, large or small, we're going to find good, bad, and ugly. <laughs> Right. And what we want to bring attention to always is how do you how do you uplift people's dignity? One of the, the ways that people are often 
just feel harmed as being, can being in these, these large congregations and people all around them and still feel lonely and isolated. And I think about how Salayla has said she's talked to Allah a lot, um, especially now that we're in a pandemic and we're physically isolated. And she's someone who's seen physical isolation in different ways. You know, she was in the group home. And now that she's living on her own, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And she's, like many of us, was largely confined to her apartment. Yeah, the physical isolation is amplified in 2020. And it's the harshest example of that is what we're seeing for people with disabilities who are living in nursing facilities where there was already isolation. So what would be your perception of a, a nursing home or nursing facility? Just, I, mean, I don't know if you've had any experience visiting or, or, or being in a facility. What would be your perception now? So my grandmother was in a nursing home. Um, she was, we had to put her in a nursing home, unfortunately, when she um, was diagnosed with breast cancer. But it was a very somber mood. Would it strike you to know that young people with disabilities often end up in nursing homes? Yeah, that is very shocking. Mm -hmm. I mean, thinking about how I view nursing homes, that's not good at all. If I have to be honest, it felt like this is where you go to die. Join us for the next episode of Hidden Voices, where we'll get an inside look at one of the most physically and emotionally isolating experiences possible for people with developmental disabilities, nursing facilities, a dire situation that has only grown more extreme during COVID-19 lockdowns. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Betty Thompson, who passed away in 2019 and is remembered as a bright light in her community. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities, Resurgence Impact Consulting, Citizen Advocacy of Atlanta and DeKalb, and L'Arche Atlanta, made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Raisa Habersham, and Derona King is my co-host. Our executive producers are Irene Turner from The Storytelling Project and Michelle Corey with Frequency Media. Ina Garkusha is our producer, Matthew Filler is our editor. Hidden Voices is sponsored by the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities, whose vision is a state in which all persons are included in all facets of community life, have choices while exercising control over their lives, and are encouraged to achieve their full potential. GCDD advances social and policy changes that further an integrated community life for persons with developmental disabilities, their families, friends, neighbors, and all who support them. This podcast grew out of their larger GCDD storytelling project. You can find out more about them and their great advocacy for and with people with developmental disabilities at gcdd.org.